Okay, so uh, we left off last week in the sixth of the uh, of the principles over here, uh, and what we were talking about is the concept of uh, describing somebody as a holy person. Uh, I did not. Uh, I, I had in mind a couple of times to go ahead and Google uh, the Cardinal Bernardine to see exactly what year he uh, he died, uh, but I, but I did not. Uh, but we we're talking about that, and we said that the essence of that, from a Jewish perspective, the essence of what it means to be a holy person is for a person to nullify themselves, nullify their uh, their physical existence, and to submit entirely to uh, to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. In, to allow their neshama to go ahead and uh, and shine through. Uh, if we don't do that, so what happens is is the accumulation of materialism and the accumulation of sins. Sometimes, sort of like a a diamond. So nothing really affects the diamond, but you could accumulate a lot of schmutz on the uh, the diamond. Certainly, when you're extracting it from wherever they uh, they they uh, they formed. So it could take a lot of time to polish it and bring it up to. Uh, to speed, but nothing really happens to the diamond uh, per se. So a holy person is somebody who sort of cleaned away all of that, the schmutz and accumulation that uh, is normally associated with physicality and has now allowed their, uh, their neshama to be the dominant aspect of their existence rather than their physical, uh, the physical being. Now, the truth is that it's not an all or nothing type of thing in the sense that either a person has nullified their entire ego, they have no um, haughtiness uh, whatsoever. You have to be on the level of Moshe Rabbeinu in terms of being uh, 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 extremely, extremely humble in order to be able to achieve a prophecy because the Gemara actually puts prophecy, the Gemara in, uh, in Sukkah talks about it, that there's actually two different categories of, of, uh, of prophecy. There's what's called aspaklaria hameira, a clear screen. We'll translate it loosely, and aspaklaria she'ena meira, which is a screen which is not so clear. Let's call it uh, the difference between transparent and translucent. So most neviim, uh, most prophets, are going to be at that lower level of translucent. What they see is not crystal clear. Uh, it's an old, uh, uh, you know, 1960s bad connection on your television set. So you can make out basically what's going on, but the detail is, is lost somewhere in the, uh, in, the, in the fuzziness of it. And then uh, clear, Aspaklaria Meira, is going to be have one of those uh, HDTVs that they have in Sam's Club when you walk in, where it's actually clearer than real life. And it's something which is, it's not even lifelike. It's better than, uh, better than lifelike in terms of the, uh, the color and the, uh, the, the, the appearance. So there's two different levels of prophecy, but both of them are, both, uh, uh, both categories, the prophet has reached the level where they are worthy of communication with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So they've done a, a, a tremendous job in terms of nullification of, of ego and self and materialism. But they're still at that, uh, even at that level, it is, uh, there's still slight nuanced differences between somebody like Moshe Rabbeinu and somebody who's on a lower level than that. Um, the person who finishes fifth in the uh, Olympic sprint for the 100 meters, 
they're still an Olympic caliber athlete. They have no medals to show for it, but they're still an outstanding athlete, which is world-class and beyond, beyond world-class class to be able to get to, to that level. But nonetheless, it's something which from our perspective, they're just fast. You know, as far as we could see it, they're just really, really fast. But at that level, the, the difference of fractions of, uh, of seconds, tenths of seconds or hundreds of seconds suddenly make a, uh, suddenly make a, a, a big deal. Okay, so now, uh, another thing which is necessary for us to, uh, to appreciate over here, when we talk about uh, this principle of the existence of prophecy, we're not talking about any particular prophet or the message that the prophet has conveyed to us in the form of the Torah, but just the existence of prophecy. So one of the things which is important to be mindful of is that the names of famous Nevi'im, famous prophets, so that we could all go ahead and cite a handful of them. You have Amos Rabbeinu, Yirmiyahu, Yishayahu. You have all of those uh, people who uh, we are well known in terms of Nebuah. They have Sfarim, which are named uh, after them. And then, uh, but the Gemara tells us that over the course of Jewish history, there's actually been millions and millions of prophets. Not prophets with an F, but prophets with a PH in the middle over there. There's been millions and millions of, of people who have achieved the level of, of prophecy. And um, uh, although prophecy no longer exists, uh, prophecy's uh, formal era, if we're going to go ahead and we're going to talk about, uh, you know, history in a flash or something like that. So uh, the era of prophecy really goes from, uh, we could uh, send them a royalty for that, but it goes from the year 2448 to 3448. So it formally begins with Moshe Rabbeinu. When we get to the principle having to do with Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy, so we'll talk about that more. But putting aside the Avos in the Mahus, um, the uh, the uh, the uh, the issue of uh, of the, their prophecy, putting all of that aside, but prophecy formally begins 2448 with the giving of the Torah and ends about a thousand years later with the death of the final one of the Nevi'im, which is Malachi. But even though the Gemara tells us that there were schools and schools of, of Nevi'im, and rather than going to university to get a, 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 an advanced degree, back in the time of Tanakh, you would go to prophecy school, and you would train in Nevoah, and you would advance your way through that, uh, that training to become a Navi. And uh, Nevi'im were, I don't want to say a dime a dozen, but they were, there were millions of them. There are millions and millions of Nevi'im which existed in the history of Klaiso. But the Gemara tells us that in, throughout all of Tanakh, there are 55 Nevi'im who are mentioned by name. We have the prophecy of 55 Nevi'im, is Gemara and Megillah, 48 male prophets and seven female prophets. And the question that we have to wonder is, if there were in reality, in Jewish history, if there were millions of Nevi'im, and we only have a formal record of 55 of them, so which is an incredibly small uh, percentage. So what happened to all of those Nevi'im whose words and message did not make their way into Tanakh? Did not become codified in any way, did not become, become canonized, or were not recorded for posterity. So what happened to all of those Nevi'im and all of the messages which they received and all of that important information that they, they had? And why was it that their Nevoah of all of these people was not recorded for, uh, for future generations? And the answer to this, uh, to this question, 
about why there's this huge discrepancy in terms of the total number of Nevi'im and those Nevi'im of whom we have a record, a written record of their, uh, of their prophecy is an important concept to understand the nature of prophecy. Because when we think of prophecy, we think of it from the perspective of Tanakh, that, uh, that uh, a prophet comes along and he goes ahead and God communicates to the Jewish people via the prophet. And that's what we think is the important element of prophet. We think of Moshe Rabbeinu is his main role was to take the word of God and to take it from Shemaim and bring it down to Aretz. And we think that uh, through Yeshayahu and Yirmiyahu and Yechezkel, that their job was to go ahead and take God's words of rebuke, his words of Musar, and to go ahead and warn the Jewish people, you better change your ways, because if you don't, bad stuff is going to happen. Stuff like uh, huge snowstorms and uh, power outages and things of uh, you know, the biblical nature, something like, uh, like that. So you better change your way, because otherwise there's going to be, uh, there's going to be big, uh, big trouble. But uh, we don't have any of that... Uh, but, the, but that's not what the overwhelming majority of prophecy was about. The overwhelming majority of prophetic experiences and visions were meant for that particular Navi and nobody else. It was a private communication and a private connection and attachment that that Navi had with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And it was in order to, uh, I don't wanna say a reward, but it was a, an indicator, a barometer of the closeness of the relationship that that individual was able to attain and able to, uh, to achieve with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And only in very extenuating circumstances did God decide that he's going to communicate to the collective Klal Yisrael a message via one of the, uh, one of the great Nevi'im. But that's not really what it was designed for. It was really designed, if, so certainly if you read, the, uh, read up in uh, Rabbi Ari Kaplan's work on meditation. So the purpose of prophecy was just an extremely high level of meditation in that trance-like state or that meditative state or that nevuah state. So one was able to get these clear visions or these translucent visions coming from HaKadosh Baruch Hu Da'aspaklaria where they were able to, uh, to communicate with God and God was able to communicate with them. And this was used as a means of uplifting them and elevating their overall avodah Hashem. So it was a personal inspiration, a personal experience, which the Nevi'im had, and it really was not intended for uh, the, uh, for the, uh, for Klai Yisrael, for future generations or other people to be able to experience or to know about. It was a private thing. And even when a Navi had the experience where he was given a message, which was necessary for him to go ahead and share with others, so that was really, uh, in a sense, incidental to the overall experience, because the main purpose of Nevoa is attachment to God is Dveikus Bahashem. That's the ultimate of Dveikus, of attachment to God, is to be able to have that direct line of communication with God, whether it's a clear screen or a fuzzy screen, but either way, it was clear that one was experiencing a, 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 a prophecy, a connection uh, with God, which was on the highest of levels. We know from the story of Yonah that uh, not every time a, a Navi received a message which he was supposed to share with others, did they necessarily even want to do so. They were reluctant to do so. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't want to go ahead and be the Navi for Klai Yisrael, be the leader of Klai Yisrael. Yonah certainly tried his best to resist being able to, uh, to, uh, to be given that, uh, that assignment and that responsibility. 
but that has nothing to do with uh, Yonah's um, uh, level of prophecy. If le- his level of prophecy allowed him to be able to communicate with God on a personal level, and then suddenly God, in a sense, changed the uh, the rules of the game over there and told him, listen, I- I've appreciated communicating with you all this time. I have a favor to ask. And Yonah said, nope, can't do it. <laughs> not available. Not not uh, not uh, not going to do it. Not going to do it. And he tried to run away. And ultimately, Hakash Baruch caught up with him, as we know the, the story. But that's what re- real prophecy has to do with not being a, a, a message for Klai Yisrael, but it has to do with achieving a connection, a very deep connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Um, now, from a, the uh, Hasidic perspective, when they go ahead and they uh, try and capture, try and explain what exactly uh, prophecy is, so what they say is, they explain that the uh, awareness of God, or let me, let me say that better, the understanding of God, which one achieves in a prophetic state while receiving nevuah, is fundamentally different than the type of connection which one is going to be able to form with HaKadosh Baruch Hu when doing so, pursuing that from an intellectual perspective. So there's experiential, and then there's intellectual. And those are two very different connections and very different perceptions of HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. That the term used to describe the connection that a Navi is going to make with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is they connect to his Mahus, Mem Hei Vav Saf, the essence of God. And the term used to describe a Chacham's, an intellectual connection with God is Mitzius, Mitziut is to know of God's existence, the difference between essence and, and existence. In other words, you could have somebody who is a tremendous Tamil Chacham, and that Tamil Chacham could be well-versed in the area of mysticism and spirituality, but nonetheless, the extent of his knowledge of God is the mitzias of God. He's aware of the existence of God. He could describe what we mean when we say God is Rachum v'chanun, that he's compassionate and he's merciful. We could talk about a jealous God and a kind God and all of those are different things. We could describe God in terms of his characteristics, but somebody who's, uh, whose connection is limited to his chachma, is his intellect, all he's going to know about is the mitzias of God. He could describe the characteristics of God, but would not be able to go ahead and describe the mahus, the essence of God. But a prophet, on the other hand, so a prophet has the knowledge of God from a mahus type of perspective, meaning the essence of God, not being able to necessarily describe in words what exactly is being experienced, but it's something that one has had the experience, and through that personal experience, one is a, one knows that they're connected to uh, to God. Um, it's similar, uh, the, the example that, uh, that they give in order to be able to, uh, to uh, convey a little bit of what the prophetic type of experience with God is, experiencing God from a mahus perspective. So the Hasidim go ahead and they use the muscle of love. So love is something which you're going to have a difficult time being able to quantify. Now, you may be able to hook a person up to all sorts of different machines and test all sorts of fluid levels in their body 
and say at an angry state, so you'll have these levels and this will be your heart rate and this will be your breathing rate and this is how it's going to be. And when a person's in love, so different chemicals will be activated in the body and you'll be able to see different things about it. That uh, hooking somebody up in being able to say, this is a person who's experiencing love from these chemicals, the love chemicals. And this is a person who's not experiencing love from a different set of chemicals in the body. That would be a description of the mitzias of love. So you can see certain characteristics, certain signs which are present, which are indicative of that type of experience that the person is having, but it doesn't capture what it means to be in love. Being in love, of being in love is something that can't really be quantified in the chemicals of the body. It's something which you have to experience and to describe to somebody who has not had that experience or to describe your personal experience with love is something which you would have a hard time doing if being able to do so at all. Because it's not something which really lends itself to language. It's not something which lends itself to description. It's something which just is. It's the mahus of what happens to a, a, an individual who is feeling that, uh, that, that sense of love but it's not something which you're going to be able to go ahead and really quantify what, what it is. So being in love and experiencing it is something which is a, is a unique experiential type of thing. And that's the essence of what prophecy is. The essence of what prophecy is, is to be able to experience God, to be able to interact with God on a mahus level, rather than just being able to describe what exactly God is, what his characteristics are, what his traits are, the Yud Gimomidos, which we have. So that's something which is, uh, the, that's the most that uh, sometimes that as a Chacham, one is going to be able to do, but that's not going to be the highest of levels. That's not going to be the, uh, the, the goal which we, are, we are, which we are striving for. Okay, now with that said, so now we get to the fundamental question as far as the prophecy is concerned. And that is like we've been asking throughout uh, the uh, the principles. This is now principle number six. So we've been asking ourselves throughout the uh, the uh, the five previous principles which we've uh, which we've discussed and we've uh, we've learned about. And that is why is it essential? Why is it one of the thirteen principles of faith to believe in the existence of prophecy? Now let me uh, elaborate on that question a, a, a little bit. The eighth principle, which will have um, uh, maybe we'll do before Pesach, or maybe we'll have to wait until after Pesach, um, depending on how things unfold. But the eighth principle tells us that we have to believe that the entire Torah that we have presently was given to us on Har Sinai. So that's a principle which I understand. One is not going to be able to be a functioning Jew. One is not going to be a religious Jew who follows Torah and mitzvahs in the event that one doesn't actually believe that the Torah that we have uh, is, was not given to us at Har Sinai, or if they don't believe that it was given to us at, at Har Sinai. So that's going to be a major impediment in terms of one's commitment and one's uh, uh, allegiance to Torah if one believes that it came from Moshe Rabbeinu, that he made it up on his own, or there are a number of different authors of the Torah. But if one believes that the Torah is not divine, so that we understand that's a, a, a clear impediment to being able to be a functioning religious Jew. So that principle, I understand why that is a principle of faith. Similarly, 
if somebody were to come along and they were to doubt or question Moshe Rabbeinu's status as the greatest of prophets, and they were to say, eh, Moshe Rabbeinu, I was in third grade with him. He was nothing special. I used to get hundreds on my tests and he used to get 85s or something. I used to tutor him back in the, back in, the, in high school and there was nothing special about him uh, b- back then. So if somebody goes ahead and they question Moshe Rabbeinu's status as the greatest of prophets and the one who actually went up into Shemayim in order to be able to get the Torah from Shemayim and bring it down to bring it down here on earth. So it also is going to leave Judaism without its foundation. So as principles, we understand why those are essential principles for a person to go ahead and, and, and to believe in. The whole foundation of Judaism would come crumbling down if one did not believe in the divinity of Torah and if one did not believe in the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu. But what happens if I don't believe in general that there were other prophets? Why is it that prophecy in and of itself, just the belief in prophecy before even mentioning Moshe Rabbeinu, why is that such a fundamental principle? Why is that something that I cannot be a function? We don't even have prophecy. As we said earlier, we haven't had prophecy since the year 3448, give or take. And now we're in the year 5781. So we've had a good 3,300 years that we haven't had active prophecy taking place. And yet the belief in the the potential for prophecy is something which remains a fundamental principle of our faith. And the simple question is why? Why is it so essential to believe in the existence of prophecy in order to be a a functioning Jew? So in this regard, so I have uh, two different, I found two different approaches, two different ways to be able to answer why it is an essential principle of faith to believe in, in prophecy. And the first approach is rooted in the idea, which the Gemara tells us in a a number of different places, but the Gemara tells us that wherever you find in Tanakh a description of God's greatness, maybe I shouldn't say description, whenever you find a presentation of God's greatness, so in that same place, in that same topic, that same discussion, you'll also find his humility. So whenever God's greatness is described or presented, his humility and his uh, willingness to be able to interact with mankind, even on a very personal level, is also going to be uh, is also going to be found, is also going to be found. So, for example, God, as we know, so He's eternal, He's infinite, and He's totally concealed from uh, from creation. So the concept of Simpson that God has to withdraw in order to be able to allow the world to exist. So in one regard, God is so great and so eternal and so infinite that he is separate and apart. He doesn't exist within the created universe. He doesn't exist within time and space the way we do. And yet, at the end of the day, when you go ahead and you peel back layer after layer after layer of physical existence, at the end of the day, we discover that there's nothing which exists even in this physical world other than God himself. So at the same time that God is eternal and infinite and outside of time and space, God exists in every uh, crack and crevice and every molecule of physical space, God, God will be found there as well. And we know, we say this in Pesukim Zimra, there are many uh, Pesukim and many uh, uh, paragraphs which we say in Pesukim Zimra, which talk about how God goes ahead and he makes sure 
to interact with the physical world. And even, even the smallest of creatures, God goes out of his way to go ahead and support and to provide their sustenance and, and their needs. So this is this sort of, uh, um, uh, from our uh, human perspective, this dual existence of God that where you find his greatness, you have a presentation of the greatness of God, that's where you're going to find his, uh, his humility. And uh, the more we understand uh, about God, and the more we contemplate and we think about the existence of God, which is an important uh, pursuit to go ahead and to, uh, 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 sadly, oftentimes we get so focused on studying Torah, understanding Torah, and we get so focused on doing mitzvahs in the proper way that we lose sight of the fact that all of that is an effort to be able to connect to God, and God somehow gets lost in the equation over there. So it's important to be able to think about and to be able to contemplate God and his existence. But as is often the case, the more we know about God and the more we're able to connect with God, the more we realize how little we know about God and how much more there is uh, to be able to, uh, to know and how distant we are actually from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And this is the thing that happens with, uh, with Torah also. You speak to any Torah scholar, so they will tell you as much as from our perspective, it seems like they know everything. But when you speak to them, they talk about how much more there is to know and how much they do not know in terms of, uh, of Torah. And the same thing is going to be true in terms of, of God, that the closer we get to God, the more we are cognizant of and the more we're aware of the great um, gap that exists between God's existence and our own and how little we actually know about God and how much more there is to be able to, uh, to, uh, to learn and understand. So that's why... It's not a coincidence that Moshe Rabbeinu, who is the greatest of the Nevi'im, the Torah itself testifies to the fact that he is the greatest of the Nevi'im. So obviously he communicated with God more than anybody else that we're going to talk about also in terms of the level of prophecy in the characteristics of Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy, which was different than all of the other prophets. But, the more, but the, as much as uh, Moshe Rabbeinu knew about God and communicated with him, uh, more directly and more clearly than anybody else. At the same time, we're not at the same time, but a, a flip side of that very same coin is, as we mentioned earlier tonight, that Moshe Rabbeinu was also the humblest of man. So he was the humblest of man is because the reason why he was so humble is because he realized how small and insignificant he was vis-a-vis Hashem. So the closer you are to Hashem, the more you rise up in terms of levels of spirituality and connection and attachment to God, you realize the, the distance that you have between them is so much greater than that. And that's something which is more deeply understood by somebody who's closer than somebody who is, uh, who is very far, uh, who's very far apart. And this is something which Moshe Rabbeinu was keenly aware of the distance and what separated him from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And therefore, the, uh, the principle of prophecy highlights for us or emphasize, uh, emphasizes for us that God, who is in reality, who's beyond all human comprehension, we really cannot grasp the essence of, uh, of God. Nonetheless, God allows himself to be experienced. And that's a tremendous thing that uh, one would think that God has better things to do with his time. Again, whatever that means as far as uh, time is, uh, as God is concerned in terms of his time. But the fact that God is infinite and internal and doesn't exist in this physical world, cannot exist in this physical world. 
and yet he still makes himself available for us humans to be able to connect with him, to be able to not only know about him, which would be mitzias, that would be descriptions of him, but to be able to have that experience of connecting with him on the deepest of levels, like a level of love, where it's something which cannot be captured in word, but something which is going to be experienced. So that itself becomes a testimony. The fact that God allows for prophecy and that prophecy exists in the world is itself a great testimony to the greatness of God that he allows uh, the finite being of a human to be able to collect, connect with the infinite, which is HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. And even though we have such a limited grasp of, uh, of God and his existence, Nonetheless, he makes himself available. So that is explanation number one, that the reason why it's so uh, uh, fundamentally important to believe in prophecy, even 3,300 years after prophecy has ceased to exist is because the principle of, philosophy, of, uh, of prophecy tells us that we humans have the ability to connect with God. Because otherwise we would think that God is so far beyond, he's so eternal and so infinite and so outside of this universe that it's not something that we can really connect with. And therefore it's essential to believe that connection with God, the vacas with Hashem, even at the low, low level that we experience it, but nonetheless, it's something where the potential is possible for it to be there. And that means that God is not a distant God who just sits on his mountaintop somewhere and uh, you know watches the uh, the universe from above and doesn't have any interaction with it whatsoever. The very existence of, of prophecy, the belief in pro- prophecy, lets us know that it's possible for us humans to be able to experience God. So that is number one. If one thinks that God, it's not possible to uh, to connect with God, so that will undermine one's overall avodah Hashem. If one doesn't believe that they connect could connect with God. So that means that the exercise of prayer, the previous principle, also sort of falls apart. We only daven, we only go through the, uh, the exercise of davening as a means of being able to reconnect with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, And that requires us to believe that connecting with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is something which, uh, which is possible. So that's why, that's reason number one, why this is considered to be such a fundamental principle of belief, because it allows for it allows with connection to, uh, to Hashem. Now, the second point uh, comes from Rav Yaakov Weinberg. Yaakov Weinberg, who we've uh, been quoting throughout this, uh, this series, because he wrote such a, uh, an important work on the 13 principles. He didn't write a work. He gave a series of lectures on the 13 principles, which they went ahead and they, uh, they uh, I don't know if they transcribed word for word, but they summarized those lectures into a very important work on the, uh, on the 13 principles. So he goes ahead and uh, uh, his uh, emphasis as far as belief in prophecy is to go ahead and differentiate between prophecy and inspiration. What does that mean? In what way are we going to, do we differentiate between prophecy and uh, 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 inspiration? So prophecy, as we have been discussing, so that involves getting a message from HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. So when one reaches that high meditative state, when one reaches that high uh, uh, prophetic state, so the uh, communication reaches them from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, 
Uh, I can't tell you exactly what that experience is like and how you know what it is. I'm not allowed to share that with you, but it's something which uh, that uh, that uh, is uh, uh, when one has that experience. So it's clear that the message which is coming to them is coming from ha- is coming from Hashem. So therefore, when Moshe Rabbeinu reaches this highest level of this meditative prophetic state, where God is giving him the Torah, taking the most sacred thing which exists, Yisrael Varais of Akut that the Torah and HaKadosh Baruch Hu are essentially one and the same, and to, to go ahead and to transmit that, to share that with, uh, with uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, in the uh, 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 the, in a word-for-word fashion that we have today, so that is something which requires the highest level of prophecy. So it's that type of communication, and it's not as we're going to as we're going to see. It's not something which came from Moshe Rabbeinu being inspired. It wasn't an inspired message which he had, which then he went ahead and filled in the other gaps. Prophecy means that it was it was transmitted, was shared with him word by word by word. When it comes to other prophets, those who uh, do not have, are not going to be able to achieve the same uh, clarity of prophecy of Nebuah of Moshe Rabbeinu. So it means that they, the vision which they saw was clear enough that it was coming from God. And even if it had that like translucent nature to it, so they couldn't make out all of the finer details of what's going on. They may not have been able to find Waldo in their uh, their prophecy. It would have been too difficult to go ahead and do so. But it was clear that the message that they were receiving and the connection which they were establishing wasn't something which they were making up in their head. It's something which was clearly coming from God. This was not a an altered state of consciousness which was uh, you know created chemically by smoking or inhaling or uh, you know, uh, digesting some uh, some uh, some sort of chemical. This is something which the, was clearly a message which was coming from uh, from God. So whether you have a nevuah on the level of a Moshe Rabbeinu, or whether you have a nevuah on one of the lower levels, on one of the millions of students of nevuah that we don't even know what their prophecy was, what their uh, their, their connection was. Nonetheless, for them, it's a clear and distinct message. It was undoubtedly something which was coming from God, and that is going to give it a, a great, a great a, authority uh, in terms of the message, whether message from Klayasol or for that individual Navi, but either way, it was a clear message coming from God, which they received. But inspiration, on the other hand, so that is much, lo- much lower, and it doesn't even necessarily come from God. So we know that there can be uh, inspiration which comes from God. You could attend a good shear on Tuesday nights between 7 and 7.45. You could go ahead and you could read a, a good drasha on, uh, on Shabbos. And one could be inspired from that and even feel that this has uh, 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 resembles or uh, uh, reminds them of some sort of divine inspiration which they have. But nonetheless, inspiration by definition means that it's not a clear communication which is coming from God. It's something where the individual who is experiencing that inspiration, who's having that inspiration, it's something which they are contributing very heavily towards that particular inspiration. And in most instances, even when something is described as a divine inspiration, really what it is, is it's a person's personal belief 
which they are presenting as if this was a divine inspiration, as if this emanated from God and came from the divine. But in reality, it's just the manufactured thinking and the wishes and the, uh, the uh, motivation, which, is, uh, which the person himself went ahead and created uh, without, the, without any divine input whatsoever. And inspiration, where it can be challenged uh, whether it is divine inspiration or whether the inspired went ahead and made it up on their own, if the whole basis of Torah came from inspiration, then the whole basis of Torah could be challenged. And one could say, how do you know? How do you know that uh, what Moshe Rabbeinu is telling us is a clear message which is coming from God? Maybe Moshe Rabbeinu went up on the mountain there. Who knows what he was smoking while he was up on that mountain, Chas Shalom? And he comes down and he tells us he has this a message which is coming from God. We would say in Gemara terminology, who said that that's necessarily uh, that there's such a thing exists that God is going to speak to Moshe Rabbeinu? Again, that same fellow says, I used to tutor Moshe Rabbeinu in high school, is going to come along and say, he's going to be the one who's going to get the message of Torah. Not a chance. I was much better than him in high school, and it's never going to, uh, to happen. And we know that of, uh, over the course of history, um, every ism which existed, and certainly when the ism is religious related, that religious leader has claimed to have had divine inspiration. Whether it's Christianity, whether it's Islam, whether it's Mormonism, whatever ism you want to go ahead and you're going to, uh, you're going to, uh, to put there. So they claim to have divine inspiration. They claim to have had a communication with, with God. But we know ultimately that the inspiration came from within themselves, and it was not of divine origin. It was not that clear message of prophecy, which, uh, which, uh, uh, which Akash Baruch Hu, uh, uh, shared with them. And it's something which uh, they believed to be true, and they were a good salesman. They were a good presenter of their vision, and that's how they were able to go ahead and sell it to, uh, to others. I just saw, Suli just uh, sent me... Uh, um, uh, from somebody's blog, they say that uh, what ultimately is going to win is the best storyteller. So the best storyteller doesn't have to be the person who's innovative in terms of their thinking process, in terms of whatever the idea is. They may not be the one who came up with the idea, but the one who's going to tell over that story or share that story with others, that's going to be the one who's going to end up on top. So I said as an example that the uh, um, um, uh, theory of evolution. Um, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Darwin. Darwin. That Darwin wasn't the first one to come up with that theory, but the reason why it's associated with Darwin is because he did the best job of writing it down, of recording it and telling the story of how evolution works, and therefore it, it ultimately becomes associated with him because he was the best storyteller. So you have all sorts of dynamic leaders who are able to inspire and motivate thousands and tens of thousands and millions of people, but not because their inspiration was actually divine, but because they were able to sell a good story. We have uh, sometimes the most uh, uh, um, uh, hated of leaders and the most uh, uh, destructive and murderous of leaders. They had very powerful messages, which they were able to, uh, to share, very strong inspiration, which they were able to generate amongst their people. People like a Gaddafi and Arafat and a Hitler, they all told a story. And their story was their inspiration or their uh, belief as far as what things should be. But ultimately, it was unreliable because it came from within themselves. 
It was not something which it was, it was an inspiration rather than a, a, a prophecy. And uh, as we know, most often people, uh, our confirmation bias is incredibly strong and people will hear exactly what it is that they want to hear and they're going to believe what they have a tendency to want to, uh, to, to believe. So if something is going to, if it emanates from, if it stems from something which is called inspiration, that's not really very reliable. It's as reliable as is the, the trust that you give to that person in your belief in that message, but it's not something which ultimately is going to have true reliability. But prophecy, the belief of pro- prophecy tells us that what Moshe Rabbeinu said, what the Navi Yishayahu said, what uh, Devorah HaNaviyah, what she shared with Klai Yisrael, is not something that they were making up on their own. Devorah didn't go ahead and just go ahead and compose a nice song, which we read Shabbos Shira, because she was a talented writer and a talented poet and a talented uh, you know, uh, songwriter. But uh, that, is, that is a prophecy, a message, a clear message, which she took from God and shared with Klai Yisrael for posterity. And that's what gives it authority is the fact that it comes from prophecy rather than simply, uh, simply inspiration. And therefore, Orf Weinberg explains that those people who want to claim that, uh, which we were familiar with, who want to claim that the Torah was not given from prophecy, but it was divinely inspired and human written. So as much as initially they may say that it was divinely inspired, but it was written down by humans, as much as they may claim loyalty to Torah and mitzvahs, but it doesn't take long for them to go ahead and begin to whittle away at some of those messages and some of those mitzvahs, which makes them uncomfortable, is no longer in vogue, it now seems uh, outdated. And one by one, you could go ahead and you could start to whittle away at the, uh, at the Torah once you believe that it was inspired rather than something which is coming from prophecy. So the belief in the existence of prophecy tells us that there exists such a thing as a clear communication coming from God for, for, uh, to mankind. And that prophecy, that message is something which cannot be questioned, cannot be uh, uh, limited, cannot be disputed because it is a clear communication from God rather than the inspiration or the message which a person has formulated in their own mind, their own vision of the world. And this is why this is considered to be one of the, one of the 13 principles of our faith is the belief in the, in the existence of prophecy and how prophecy differs from inspiration. Um, okay. I think that uh, that uh, uh, pretty much brings us to an end of this uh, of this uh, this principle. So we're going to hold it over here. Um, everybody should stay healthy, safe, warm. Uh, we Thank you, Rabbi.